The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, as we near the end of this most extraordinary book, we ask, as we ask each week and have now for the past ten months, that you would be gracious with your children here at Christ Community Church, taking your revealed word, making it known to us that we might understand it, and then by the power of your Holy Spirit, enabling us, in fact, causing us to live in obedience to it. We do not want to be hearers of your word and not doers. And as we end Revelation 22, as we draw near to the end of the Bible, I pray, Father, that you would cause each of us to come to Christ. If we do not know you this morning, Lord, cause us to come to Christ. If we know you, cause us to come to Christ. He is the one who is worthy of worship. He's the only one that can make us clean. And is the only one that can set our path on that narrow road that leads to eternal life. The tree and the water and the new Jerusalem. Father, I know that we can come, become so complacent in our walk. Certainly here in the West where comfort supersedes trials. I pray, Lord, that you would not let that happen to this church. Don't let it happen to me or my brothers and sisters to become complacent in our walk. There's an urgency here, Father. You will reveal that to us today and next week. An urgent calling that every man, woman, and child needs to heed. And so if you would, make us heed these final words in this final book. The consequences of not are catastrophic. The blessings for those who do are unspeakable. And so we ask, as we always do, Holy Spirit, that you would mold and melt our hearts, make us receptive to receive your word, transform us as really only you can into the image of your Son. We want to be as Christ is. Do that, I pray, through this passage and this sermon in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You know, there's a, a great danger of working through a book as magnificent as Revelation and coming to the end and, and hopefully having a great satisfaction and a great joy of finally saying, you know what, I think I understand that book now. I think I, I have some apprehension of it. And that's fantastic. And as we talked about in our community groups on, on Wednesday, we want that. We want to be able to go to it and read it and understand it. But it's a grievous thought that we might actually know this book and understand this book and now live in disobedience to it. And so what God's doing here in these, la- these final verses, there's an urgency and a plea to call his people to hear, to understand, and to obey. And so I, I pray I can communicate that same to you. It is my prayer for myself. It is my prayer for us as a church that we would close this book next week with an understanding and an obedience to it. We do not want to be hypocrites. The title of the sermon is Come to Jesus. And I thought, well, that could be the title of every sermon, not only in the book of Revelation, but maybe the entire Bible, right? Come to Christ, right? Certainly in light of what we've learned in the book of Revelation, you can say that's, that's an imperative that you want to hear and tell others. Come to Jesus. He is the living water. He is the one who grants us eternal life. I had a chance last week, I was working last week out in the sun for several hours, and I have a tendency to become myopic when I'm working, and so I was, I was sweating profusely, and I'm working, I'm thinking, one more hour, one more hour, and all of a sudden I stopped, and I was very, very dizzy, and I realized, I'm going to pass out, and, and I, I become severely dehydrated. Water is one of those things, my beloved, that you know your body cannot do without for a very long period of time. You deprive yourself of water. Um, and after a few days, your body begins to shut down and you'll actually die. So it's not a good thing to become dehydrated. If you remember following the Hurricane Katrina, um, in the state of Louisiana, they, that entire state, 
essentially was flooded and, and most of their drinking water was bad. And so they were unable to bring bottled water to all the residents of the state of Louisiana. And so the, the governor put out this public safety notice telling people how to drink or to make clean, unclean water. It said, first boil the water for one full minute in a clean container. That one minute starts after the water was actually ro- has a ro- rolling boil. Second thing, if the water is clear, it said mix one-eighth teaspoon of unscented liquid chlorine bleach with every one gallon of water and then let it stand for 30 minutes. And then at that point in time, if it's still clear, mix in five drops of 2% USP iodine solution and then, and only then, would the water be safe to drink. For those who did not heed the counsel, several got sick and some died because they drank contaminated water. Friends, as we approach the end of our study in the book of Revelation, God reveals clearly man's desperate need to be made clean, purified through and through if we desire to drink from the eternal waters that flow from the throne of God. If you want access into the kingdom, then you must be made completely pure. When we arrive to the end of Revelation 22, the visions are over, The story of how God's redemptive movement for mankind, it's come to a completion. We understand it now. It's been revealed to us. And these last verses, God is, he's striving to get the church to prepare itself for the coming of Christ. These last verses are calling us to be ready for that day when Christ does what? He comes again in glory, he judges, he redeems, and he makes all things new. You say, well, there's, there's, a, there's a, a summary of the entire book. Christ coming to judge, Christ coming to redeem, and Christ coming to make all things new. And we had a chance last week to say, listen, if Christ is coming and he's coming soon, then you want to what? You want to keep his word? You want to know it and keep it? You want to worship God alone, no one else? And we want to, as a church, as we saw last week, we want to tell others. We want to we tell the nations. There's, there's work for us to do as God's people in light of God's sending Christ to come again in glory. This Sunday, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17. We're not going to finish the book. Some of you are happy about that. Some of you are sad about that. It doesn't really matter. This is what God gave me to preach this week, so this is what I'm doing, 14 to 17. And we're going to see our need fundamentally to be clean. I mean, really clean. All the way through to be purified of all of our sins. If we want access into the city, if we want access to the tree of life and to the water of life, then we must be pure. Now, when you stop for a moment and you think about your life and you think about your sins from the moment that you can remember to this present hour, you think, what a monumental task. Who could possibly make me clean? It should be like that if you see yourself clearly. My hope is to show you that you need to be made clean and that Christ came to make you clean. He's the only one that can do that work in the heart of a sinner like you or me. Not boiling water, not adding chlorine bleach or iodine. The only thing that can cleanse us is the blood of Christ. That's it. And we need it, each of us desperately. And in fact, we need it so much, God says, I want you to invite the world to come to Christ and be made clean by his blood. It is our charge to one another and it's our charge to the unsaved as well. To come to Christ and what? And live and have life. So I want to spend the next several minutes, if you're willing, to hear from an angel and hear Jesus himself. It's great. Reading the book and Jesus says, I got to talk too. And Jesus speaks himself to John and to the churches. And, And I'd like to hear them and I'd like to come to an understanding of three things. Number one, you need to be washed clean. Yes, you. No matter how long you've known Christ, no matter how long you've been in the church, you need the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Number two, that Jesus came for the distinct purpose of washing. He is the divine washer. He came to wash away our sins. And number three, God invites you to come to Jesus. So you need to be made clean. Christ came to make you clean. And then God invites you, in fact, he invites the world to come to Christ and be made clean. It's a gospel sermon. I hope that you're excited about that. I hope you're not saying, you know, let's, let's get into some more of that really difficult details of the trumpets and the seals. This is pure gospel, encouraging to us, I hope, 
and compelling us to go out and tell the world. Here's the theme of the sermon. All are invited, but only the clean shall enter, eat, and drink. Everyone's invited, but only the clean enter, eat, and drink and find their satisfaction in the living God. Point number one, you need to be washed clean. Look at verse 14. Here and I was going to do a short introduction. <laughs> Number, verse 14, here we go. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So the angel again is speaking to John and says, blessed are those who wash their robes. Now this is the seventh And the final beatitude, blessed are those who, the final beatitude in the book of Revelation. It's the final calling in the last book of the Bible for man to repent of his sins, turn to Christ, and be saved, and be blessed by God. And as we find here in this last chapter, in this last beatitude, it's fitting that the promise, if you obey, is nothing less than eternal life. The blessing to this beatitude is the right to the tree of life. It's the right to enter the gates of the city of God. It says those who wash their robes, the angel says, they have the legitimate right, that same word, it can also be power. They have power to come to the tree, to enter the city. Now we know that's all symbolic for being with God, for being in the presence of God, in eternal life here on the new earth, to come into the city of God as as legitimate citizens, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, to enjoy His presence, to glorify and worship Him forever. Those whose robes have been washed clean. You see, to be given the right to take from the tree of life is what? It's the reverse of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were cast out of the garden and they were denied access to the tree of life. They were denied access to the presence of God in the eternal realm. But here the angel tells us, if you wash your robes, you get back in. You regain access, permanent access to the living God, to this life-giving tree, provision, the protection, the purpose, the communion that we looked at two weeks ago. The blessed eternal life is yours if your robe has been washed. And that means, my beloved, we get legitimate access. This is not sneaking in. Right? It's not you trying to get into a back door of heaven or climbing over the city walls, which you cannot do even if you tried. It's literally coming, says coming through the gates, the main gates of the city. Well, who entered the main gates of cities at that time? It were friends of people of the city. Enemies didn't just come right through the gates. Robbers snuck in. You, though, if your robe's been washed, you come into the presence of God as a friend. You come in as someone that's been invited to come and to stay. Now we're told outside the eternal city are all those who have been denied access to the tree of life. Look at verse 15 again. They, they're denied because they remain unclean. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, this is another vice list. We've seen a few already. And like all vice lists or sin lists in the in the Bible, they're not comprehensive by any means. But this particular list, it's, um, it's unique in that each particular sin clearly shows how to practice it, to continue it, makes you unclean, and if unclean, unfit to enter the city. Dog was a, it was a derogatory term, primarily used by Jews to talk about the unclean life of the Gentiles. So it was not, I know, We look at dogs differently today. They did not look at dogs like that. It was not a good thing to be called a dog. Sorcerers, those who engaged in witchcraft and wizardry, they they made themselves unclean by associating with the demonic. The sexually immoral, well, you say, well, that's easy. The sexually immoral pervert what God intended to take place only between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And of course, I have to say that today, again and again and again, a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Those who engage in sexual morality make themselves unclean. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, polygamy, lust. Murderers are unclean because they have the blood of someone on their hands. Unclean to come before God. 
idolaters are made unclean because they worship a false god. And then it ends here with liars, those who love and practice falsehood. Now, that makes sense. If anyone loves and practices falsehood, they cannot love and serve the God who is truth. Lying lips, the sage said, Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an, abom- an abomination to the Lord. So this is an affirmation of what, what John had already said in Revelation 21. Remember, Revelation 21, 27, John said, nothing unclean. He had the vision of the city. And he's looking, he says, nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those whose robes are washed will enter the city of God. And that's because that's where God dwells. Remember, the city of God is where God has made his eternal dwelling place with himself and mankind, those that he's redeemed through the blood of Christ. And so this, if this is God's home, then God's holiness will not and cannot dwell in the midst of the unclean. You cannot be unclean and dwell in the presence of a thrice holy God. Psalm 5.4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Old Testament, New Testament testify to that. God's always required of his people cleansing. Cleansing of robes, cleansing of bodies, and they've always been symbolic. They've always been metaphors of the need for moral and spiritual cleansing on the inside for a new heart that can worship the living God without being enslaved to sin. This has always been part, even going back to Mount Sinai. Remember at Mount Sinai, God tells Moses, I'm coming down. Go prepare the people. Listen to this. Exodus 19, before God descended on top of the mountain, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. What was, was God a prude? I mean, did he need, did he need everybody there in their, their suits and dresses and their Easter hats in order to worship him? Did they have to look a particular way? God was not concerned about the outer garment. They washed their garments as a symbolic testimony to their cleansing before the Lord. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, tell them to wash their garments. The Levites, those who would serve in the, in the tabernacle and then the temple, they were required to wash their clothes before they would enter into the service of Yahweh. Israelites, Israelites priests were actually given new clothes by Moses in order to lift up sacrifices to God. Even the high priest, even the high priest on, on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, he was required, to, his body was to be washed, his robe was washed, he went in and sacrificed himself, then he'd come back out, they'd wash him again, put a new robe on him again, he'd go back in and sacrifice for the people, even the high priest. I mean, it's the high priest. You don't get any closer to God than the high priest. He had to wash and bathe and wash in order to enter God's presence. If you were an Israelite and you made yourself unclean by touching a dead body or having some discharge, you were required to wash your body and wash your clothes if you were going to come and worship God. And if you had that horrible disease, leprosy, you were to come before the priest and the priest would actually declare you to be unclean with your leprosy. And then this was your responsibility To all those around you, listen to this. This is from Leviticus 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. His dwelling shall be outside the camp, outside the city, away from God and away from God's people. Now you may think, that all the purification rituals, one's probably boring to you, and two, maybe they're antiquated. And they certainly are in terms of how we practice being cleansed by God in Christ. But they were all beautiful and elaborate types and shadows. They were road signs telling every single person, you have to be clean to come before the Lord. You have to be pure to come before the Lord. Your sins need to be washed somehow if you want to dwell in the presence of God. All the Old Testament was pointing to and teaching to this need for perfect cleansing of every sinner to enjoy the new creation and the new Jerusalem and the presence of God. Access to God requires this cleansing. That means all sin. Every single sin you have committed, are committing, or will commit before you enter 
that eternal city must be cleansed by God. All of your sorcery. You say, I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not a wizard. Let you practice superstition. All that involvement with the demonic. All the sexual immorality. All the lustful thoughts. And the pornographic images. And the movies that we watch. And the music we listen to. All the murders. You say, I've never committed murder. Maybe not with your hands, but certainly with your heart and mind. And you know what Jesus said about that. If you said to your brother, Raka, you've committed murder in your heart already. You say, well, I know I'm an idolater. I bow down to things that I ought not. And I know I'm a liar. And therefore, the lake of fire belongs to me. All those sins and every sin that you've ever committed must be completely clean. God's holiness mandates that he will not dwell with evil. Now, the problem, I think, for most Western Christians, and and maybe for you today, and hopefully this will help you, this teaching will help you, is that we don't see ourselves as being totally unclean. We see ourselves as being a little unclean. Maybe not as good as we should be, but not unclean through and through. Even in the church, even in the church, my beloved, there are many who believe that, that we are mankind. We're basically good. We, we do some bad things, but we're basically good. We actually need, we just need a little tweaking here and there. We need a little modification to, to head us in the right direction. A little bit of teaching, but we don't need cleansing. We don't need purification. We don't need a top to bottom purification that comes from God. According to the pollster George Barna, this stat is staggering. 72% of professing Christians in the United States believe that people are basically good. 72%, almost three quarters of all those in this country who profess Christ believe that people are basically good. And 58% believe that a person is good enough or does enough good things he or she can earn their way into heaven. Now, I don't need to tell you that's problematic on multiple levels. Fundamentally, it nullifies the gospel, right? The gospel tells, teaches us clearly that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not because of your works. We know that. The Bible is permeated with that teaching. But without this basic understanding of, of the doctrine of total depravity of man, the, the, the total ruin of the human heart that Every single human being is born a sinner, practices sin, and is above all else inwardly turned. We, we worship ourselves exceedingly well. R.C. Sproul put it like this. He described the human condition as the body, the mind, the will, and the spirit. Indeed, the whole person being infected by the power of sin. That's good. Unless we see our total depravity, we will never see our need for total cleansing. Unless you come to grips with the fact that your heart is sinful through and through, you will not believe you need to be cleansed through and through. And the result will be, according to this passage, you'll be denied access to the tree of life. You will not enter the city by the gates because you do not see your need for total, complete cleansing. Friends, you don't need to be cleaned up. As many sermons today from pulpits like this around this country are teaching how to be the better father, how to be the more doting mother, how to be the better employee. Those are all good things. But cleanup is not the gospel. You need to be made clean. For years, I used to restore old cars. And I'd find them, and I'd look at them, and I'd go get them. And it's amazing to me that people would advertise fully restored. And then you'd pull up, and you'd look, and you're like, oh, man, that's not even close to being restored. they put a you know, real cheap $2,000 paint job on it, you know, some new tires, And then you'd open the hood and you're like, oh, right? Not restored. Not even close to being restored. And then there were those people who said a rotisserie, like a rotisserie chicken, a rotisserie restoration, where they literally stripped the car down, every nut and every bolt, and they put it on a rotisserie, and they media blast it, and from the beginning to the end, it is a restored vehicle. You need more than a simple coat of paint, my beloved, (laughs) On the very core of your being, at the very inside, you need to be put on a spiritual rotisserie and God needs to media blast you through and through if you desire to end up in this blessed state. We do not need behavior modification. We need heart transformation. 
We don't need behavior modification. We're, this is not Skinnerian Christianity. It's total transformation of heart and mind. That's what you need to get in. At least that's what Jesus is telling us here. Made pure, no moral defect to eat from the tree of life. If that does not happen, listen, then the high priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, will declare you unclean, just as the priest did in the Old Testament for the leper. Jesus Christ will declare you unclean and he will compel you to live outside the city and you, like the leper, will keep your mouth over your upper lip and you will cry out forever and ever, unclean, unclean, unclean. So the first thing that we need to see here, I pray, is that we need our robes washed. We need to be cleaned through and through if we have any hope of overcoming our uncleanness and having eternal life, the tree of life and the city. The operative question then is what? How do we do that? Now don't, you say, we just had a chance to sing it, yes, but how does that happen? How does a sinner, as wretched as me and as wretched as you, find themselves absolutely pure and able to enter the city through the gates to worship a thrice holy God? How do we do it? How does it happen to us and what role do we play? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Jesus came to make you clean. He came to wash away your sins. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, I, Jesus, so Jesus now, the angel speaking, and now Jesus talks. Jesus says, I have sent my angel to testify to you, John, about these things for the churches. So the letters are for the churches that we might know. And then he says, I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star. And so this is such an incredible part of the end of the book of Revelation. The last book of the Bible is, is hurrying to a close and Jesus speaks up. He's on the throne and he talks. And he, he tells John, listen, every single word you recorded, either I've said or it's come through an angel that I've sent. In other words, Jesus is putting an exclamation point on every word in the book of Revelation. Jesus is affirming every single word that we've been studying now for the past 10 months. It's an exclamation point. He's saying the warnings to the seven churches, the cycle of judgments that you've seen, the punishment of Satan and death and Hades, the, the destruction of Babylon, the saving of his people, the making of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem for us to dwell in forever. Jesus said, this is all my message. It's his story. He's the author and perfecter of it. He's saying, this is my story, and now I've made the story known to you. So live in accordance with it. And then Jesus sets forth, again at the close of the book, his fifth and final I am statement. These are divine declarations. Christ claiming his position as God in the book of Revelation. This is the fifth and last one. It's a divine disclosure of who this God-man is. And he says, one, I'm the root and descendant of David, and number two, the bright and morning star. Now, if you were here with us several months ago now, and you remember from the book of, from the book of, from the chapter of Revelation, chapter five, Jesus talked about himself as the descendant of David. And if you remember, we talked about that. That was, that's a, a, a title given to the Messiah. Right? That's a title given to the, the expected Savior who would come in the name of God and deliver God's people from their enemies. It was drawn in Revelation 5 and drawn here directly from Isaiah 11. Listen, Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from its root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is God's promised Savior of his people, the root and descendant of David. He would come in the flesh as a man to set God's people free. He would not only do that, but he would bear much fruit. You say, well, how would he bear much fruit? He would bear much fruit by setting us free from our sins, those who have been made captive and enslaved from Genesis chapter three throughout all of human history. He would come as the descendant of David as a man, and it says he would come as the bright morning star. Now, for those of you who remember Balaam's prophecy, in the book of Numbers, that comes directly from Balaam's last oracle when he was talking about the Savior. He said, that Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna destroy God's enemies. Numbers 24, listen, this is Balaam now in his prophecy. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is the bright and morning star. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Those are the enemies 
of God. This Messiah would come and do this. Now, when we think of enemies of God, we, we, we usually think in terms of, of Satan or those who are today hostile to the church, hostile to the word of God. Now, after studying the book of Revelation, you might think, no, I'm thinking more of the beast, which I think is the government, and, and the false prophet, which is the media propaganda machine of the false government, and that's all true. Those are all enemies of God and, and of God's people, but the greatest enemy of God's people has always been the same. It is sin. Sin is the great enemy of God, and sin is the great enemy of God's people. The heart of man in rebellion against God has always been man's greatest enemy. How do I know that? James chapter 1, listen. James chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Each person is tempted to sin when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. And then James says, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth what say it brings forth death well that's life outside the city isn't it that's being denied the tree of life that's being denied the water of life that's living as a dog and a sorcerer and a sexually immoral murderous idolater as a liar denied access to god but this descendant of david this bright morning star came to do battle against our greatest enemy. He came to do battle against our sin. This great I am. The same beloved John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, listen. He writes, you know that he, speaking of God's son, you know that he appeared, he came in the flesh in order to what? Take away sins. In him there is no sin. So Jesus Christ, the great I am, became a man to ascend the cross And take away your sins so that the one who had no sin could do what? Could make you clean. Because that's your problem. You need to be made clean in order to enter the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made him, speaking of Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become, say it with me, we might become what? The righteousness of God. We might become clean through and through. Christ came for that reason. He came to wash you. On the cross, God the Father treated His sinless Son who knew no sin as the most unclean man who had ever lived. That's how God the Father treated His Son on the cross. He treated His Son, our Savior now, as a what? As a dog. He treated Him as a sorcerer, a sexually immoral idolater, a murderer, a liar. That's how he treated Christ, even though we know he's the only man whose thoughts were perfectly pure. 33 and a half years, perfectly moral, heart perfectly loving, the only man who ever worshiped God perfectly every moment of every day, whose every word was not only not a lie, it was divine truth. Only Jesus Christ was this man, and yet he received the eternal death that we deserve. He took that punishment on the cross for my sins, for your sins, so that what? So that all who confess their sins and put their trust in Christ might be what? Might be made clean. Might have our sins washed away. This is the great work of the descendant of David. This is the great work of the bright and morning star to come and do battle with sin and win so that all those who put their faith in him win too. Uh, I want to win. I want you to win. Losing's bad. Losing eternally is horrible. 1 John 1 again. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. He will not only forgive you of your sins, but he will cleanse you. He will purify you from all unrighteousness. Every single sin will be washed away. He said in verse 7 of 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, I don't know about you, beloved, but I have some pretty bad sins in my life. There are sins that still come to mind, and at times I think it's more the enemy that's trying to shake my assurance in the Lord. They come to mind and I think to myself, oh Lord, 
How could you ever forgive me for that? Not that sin. Okay, the other ones, yeah, but how could you forgive me for that? Well, the promise here is that this descendant of David, this bright and morning star, will defeat all my sins if I place my faith in him. And that's the same promise that belongs to you. So whatever sin you have rambling around in your past that you think, no way, no way, way. Christ does that. Christ can do that. Christ wants to do that. Do you remember, I hope you do, remember in Revelation chapter 7 we were talking about the martyrs? And my argument to you was that the martyrs that were underneath the throne crying out, how long, Lord? I argue that was the totality of the church. That's every single person saved by grace in Christ from Genesis 3 to the very end the symbolic 144,000. Do you remember what John saw them doing? This was our first kind of a total consummation vision. Do you remember what he saw them doing? They were enjoying eternal life. Revelation 7, just listen and, and see the picture. They're in the city. They're before the throne of God, Revelation 7, 15. And they serve him, God, day and night in his temple. They have what? They have purpose. Remember we talked about that? They have eternal purpose. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They have protection. They have purpose. They have protection. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. They have provision. Perfect purpose, perfect protection, perfect provision. Verse 17, Revelation 7. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. They have communion. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In Revelation 7, it's the same vision that John's getting here. It's the church before God in the great city. And they're there experiencing eternal life, purpose, protection, provision, communion, because, listen, this is Revelation 7, 14, they had washed their robes and made them white in what? The blood of the Lamb. That's how they got in. They had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, my beloved, they took all, all their filth, all their sorcery and sexual morality, all their murderous thoughts, all their idolatrous worship, all their lying, all their hatred. They took every single sin and they brought it before the cross of Christ. They did not say we are, we are worthy. They brought it before the cross of Christ and they did what? They cried out for mercy. They said, God, have mercy on me, not because I'm not a sinner. Have mercy upon me because you judged Christ instead of me. These are those that John saw who had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Christ, the Lamb of God, ascended that cross, and as his blood flowed down, it comes upon all those who repent and all those who believe, and it washes us white as snow. Now, that's somewhat ironic, is it not? The blood, crimson blood, washing you white as snow. Isn't that why we sing? Well, we had a chance to sing. I'm going to read this, but I'm, I really want to sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen, sister. Thank you. Only the blood has the power to wash away your sins and make you fit for the city of God, for the presence of God of a holy God. And that blood can only come to you, my beloved, as a gift. Only the blood can make you clean, make you whole, and it must come to you as a gift from God. It cannot be earned. It must be received. John 3.16, you know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It must be a gift you must apprehend the gift by grace through faith. You must believe. And if you believe, my beloved, if you trust not in your own work but the work of Christ, if you really believe, you're saying, Lord, I'm putting my life, my hands, my purity into your son's work, well, then the city is yours and the tree of life is yours and God is yours. We gotta stop trying so hard to earn our way into heaven. Stop it. 
It's a dead end. Stop. We must stop thinking like that 58% of professing Christians in this country who think that if you're good enough that you can enter the city. There's no such thing as self-cleansing. No such thing as self-made righteousness in God's economy. Now we know this theologically. Most of you do, I know. If I, if I surveyed you and said, how many of you think that you can actually make it into the city by doing good works? You said, come on, come on. We've been here long enough. We know that's not the gospel. And yet, what we know theologically does not translate necessarily into how we live our lives. I think many of us still operate more on merit than we do on grace. And, and, I, and I say that because of the lack of love that we still see in the Western church. You say, what, what does love have to do with grace and obedience? Luke chapter 7. Remember Luke chapter 7? Jesus is dining with the Pharisee Simon. And as he's dining, a woman comes in, likely a prostitute, and she comes in and she starts to just gush over Jesus. She's pouring out her love on Jesus. You remember that episode. Simon, he sees the woman doing this, and Simon says to himself, if this man, speaking of Jesus, if he were a prophet, he would know. He would have known who listened to this and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a, a sinner. Simon has elevated himself, has he not? And he said, oh, if Jesus knew who was touching him and saying these things to him, he would cast her out. Now, many of the Pharisees, not all but many, they had believed, they believed that because of their adherence to the law, they were in. They thought because of their strict adherence to God's law and their own laws that they were deserving not of judgment but of eternal life, that their works made them clean and fit for the kingdom. Listen to Jesus and his response to Simon. This is Luke 7, verses 44 and following. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now listen to this. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The woman's extreme expression of love for Jesus revealed her heart. And unlike Simon, she knew she deserved eternal damnation. She knew that. She knew that she was a sinner through and through. And she knew that she needed Christ to make her clean. Her love and expression of love, extreme, revealed a heart filled with gratitude and joy that she had in fact been forgiven by Christ. Simon, on the other hand, he was resting on his own good works. He was resting on his own acts of righteousness, his own adherence to the law, and so his love for Jesus was small, in many ways non-existent. He was not even a good host. He didn't even wash Jesus' feet when he entered his house, which was common practice of the day. Simon's love revealed no sense of gratitude, no thanksgiving to God or God's Son for the forgiveness of sins. In Simon's perverted way of thinking, he thought, I'm already in. I'm not outside with the dogs and the sorcerers and this prostitute, this woman, this sinner. Friends, one of the easiest ways to evaluate whether or not you have truly been cleansed by the blood of Christ and made clean and fit to enter, or if you are like Simon, still trying to work your way into the city of God, is your expressed love for God and one another. It's a, a litmus test for the Christian. How well do you love the Lord? How well do you obey the Lord's commands? How well do you love others, serve others in the church, and minister to the lost? If you love little, my beloved, then you are forgiven little. It reveals the state of your heart before this holy God. I'm not simply saying that you love. I'm talking about what you do, how you love. 
like this woman? Is your worship for God, your service to God, your sacrifice for the kingdom, is it motivated by duty or by choice? Are you here out of your love for Christ or because you feel like you have to because it's the Lord's day? If you love little, then you're likely still working your way to heaven. If you love little, then you don't realize the magnitude of forgiveness that God expressed through the blood of Christ. If you love little, then maybe, I pray not, but maybe like Simon, you think that you've earned it because you haven't been that bad. You're not like that woman, that sinner. Christ must wash you clean And if he has, if you have been forgiven much, you will love much. If you know the sacrifice made and the forgiveness that comes through Christ, which is much, you will love much. So we've seen, number one, your need to be washed clean to have access to the city. Number two, that Christ came to wash you clean to give you access to the city. I got one more point, I pray. You're still with me. God invites you to come to Jesus. You got a problem with sin. Christ came to deal with that problem. And then God calls you to come to Jesus, the one who can wash you clean. Look at verse 17. You talk about encouraging verses in the entire book. These are extraordinary. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Triune God is calling mankind to come to Jesus. The bride, which we know is the church, for 2,000 years, the true church has been calling sinful man to come to Jesus, to be washed clean, to enter the city. The Spirit, the church, and indeed here, all people who hear the prophecy of this book and understand the necessity of coming to Christ to have eternal life are told to tell others, tell them to come. It's this mass invitation to all humanity throughout all of human history. And here it's commanded by God to tell the masses, to tell the nations what? Come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Because only Jesus has the power to cleanse you of your sin. Come to Jesus and come quickly because he's coming soon. There's a repetition here of the spirit and, and the church and those who are listening. And it's a sense of urgency. And it's an appropriate way, is it not, to end the book? There's an urgency here. An urgent petition for all who hear and understand to come to Christ. Before it's too late. Now if you're in Christ, someone told you to come. Someone did. You may know exactly who that person is. And I imagine they have a very special place in your heart, do they not? Someone, though, if if you've come to Christ, if you're in Christ, someone shared with you the holiness of this God. Someone said, you know, you've got a problem with sin. And it's not just that you sin, but you are a sinner through and through. And then someone told you about this man named Jesus Christ, this descendant of David, this bright morning star who came down to earth to pay for sins to forgive us of sins, to make us clean. Someone told you that. And then someone told you to come to him, to repent and turn and follow him. And if you're in Christ, you did. You did. And you're here now in Christ hearing this and hopefully your heart is rejoicing. And aren't you thankful that you heard, someone told you. And aren't you thankful that you came. Aren't you thankful the Holy Spirit did a mighty work in your life, not because you deserved it. We were all like Simon. We were worse than Simon. But he came to you a sinner, a sorcerer, a sexually immoral, murderous, idolatrous liar. He came to you and said, be alive, and brought you to himself. Aren't you glad that he did, that he forgave you of your sins, and that he gave you, he gave you the righteousness of Christ, which is now yours. That's why you're clean, because you have Jesus' righteousness been given to you freely by grace. I guess the question I want to ask as we close is if we who are in Christ are so filled with love and so filled with thanksgiving for the forgiveness that we have received through the blood of Jesus 
that like the woman in Simon's house, if we're so filled with this love and this joy that someone told us to come and we came, why, my beloved, why are we so reluctant to tell others to come? If someone told us and we came and we're filled with joy, we're in Simon's house, we're doting on the Lord, we're crying over the Lord, we're anointing the Lord, we're loving the Lord, then why are we so reluctant to tell others to come to the Lord? If he's that good to us, why do we hesitate? We know Everybody who does not know Christ needs to be made clean. We know Christ came to make them clean. We're being told here, this is an affirmation of 1 Timothy and 2 Peter, is it not? We're being told here that God is calling all people to come to Christ. This is an affirmation that God truly, 1 Timothy 2.4, desires, listen, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that. God, 2 Peter 3, 9, does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God desires none to perish, ought not we? Why, my beloved, are we so silent? I thought about this. We've talked about this dozens, if not hundreds of times in the last 25 years from the pulpit. We talk about things like the fear of man, and that's real, I get it. And we talk about the consequences in this life if we share the gospel and what happens with family and friends and work. We talked about the cost here in Silicon Valley of being a faithful proclaimer and calling people to Jesus. And, and we talked about the lack of fruit. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of fruit. We testify, we teach, we call, but no one comes. You tell me to come and no one comes. But ultimately, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, I think that we don't call people to come because of our lack of love. Because we are more like Simon than we want to admit. We lack a love for God and we lack a love for the lost. And because we love God so little, it's okay, we're okay hearing the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to come to Jesus and live. We're okay hearing that and because we love God so little, disobeying it. We're okay, my beloved, looking upon the lost in our mission field and not telling them about Christ because we don't love the lost much either. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm out and about, and maybe it's just because I'm older now, I don't know, um, it's the brokenness is overwhelming to me now. Lori and I, we had James and Caleb, we were watching them when Hazel and Brandon were in the hospital, and we took them to the mall. Now, I'm not a big fan of malls or amusement parks, but we took them there because it was air conditioning and we could get a little bit of food. And I sat there, and it was hard for me to finish my meal. The overwhelming sense of brokenness. The whole mall. And I thought, well, this can't just be the place of broken people. This is the state of mankind. They don't know about Christ. They haven't heard that they can come and actually be forgiven of their sins and actually live. They don't know, and they won't know unless we love them and tell them. The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In your nearness to God, if you do this on a daily basis, and there are lots of ways, lots of means of grace to draw near to God, but if you do that, if you draw near to God and he draws near to you, your love for God will grow. You will see him in his beauty and his majesty. You will see the sacrifice that he made to redeem you that he took. He took our stained, sin-saturated robes and he placed it upon his son. And then he took the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ, that pure white robe, and he put it upon us. You'll see the sacrifice and you will love God more and you will see God clearly and you will love him because of who he is. You'll see his power and his humility. You'll see his justice and his mercy. You'll see his infinite love and his infinite goodness and you will be drawn to him and you will love him more and more. And when you love God more, you will love the lost. You'll love the lost like Christ loved the lost when he looked upon Jerusalem and he wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Draw near to God, 
He'll draw near to you. Your love will grow. And as your love grows, my beloved, you will call people to Jesus. Love will be the means that opens your mouth and loosens your tongues and brings them. And there are many, here's the good news, there are many in your mission field right now who are thirsty, that want to drink. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 17 again. Let the one who is thirsty come, but the one who desires take the water of life without price. Right now, right now, God's moving upon people in your mission field. You may not know who they are, maybe you do, but he is, he's moving, he's giving them a thirst for righteousness. He's giving them a desire for Christ and these eternal waters, but they don't know how to quench it. They don't know how to quench their thirst because they haven't been told. And they don't know they can come without payment. They don't know that the, the offer to come and to drink and to have eternal life has been paid for by Jesus and therefore is free to us. That the water of life is free to us. They don't know that, but we do. And God calls us to tell them to come and take and drink and live. How many, my beloved, in your mission field have never heard that before? Come to Christ, be forgiven of your sins, drink from the eternal waters of, of eternal life, and have God forever. We're commanded to tell people to come. But this is not just for the lost. It's for you too. That blessed life of having all the provision and all the protection and all the purpose and communion with God that has been set before us, that 24-7 access to the city, to the glory of God, to worship God, that's set before us. But we don't have to wait to have intimacy with God now. We don't have to wait. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we can every moment of every day, listen, regardless of your circumstances, no matter how difficult they are, you can come to Christ. Every moment of every day, the Spirit enables you to come to Christ and dwell with Christ and rest in Christ and enjoy Jesus. I mean really enjoy the person, the Savior, the descendant of David, the bright more. Know him and enjoy him and have him every moment of every day, here and in eternity. You are called to come and drink this morning too. Those of you in Christ to come and be satisfied so deeply that you stop chasing after all the things that you think will satisfy, but will not. Drink from Christ and be satisfied. You're called this morning to come to Christ and stop trying to earn your way like Simon into heaven. Come to Christ, receive the grace and the mercy free, and rejoice in it. Some of the most tender and encouraging words I think our Lord ever uttered to come from Matthew chapter 11. He was looking upon the crowds. He's looking upon the masses. And this is what he said. You know it well. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My beloved, stop laboring in the flesh to make it to heaven. Stop striving to be satisfied eternally here on earth. Come to Christ, be made clean, and your heart will be so filled with joy and thanksgiving and love, not only will you find rest in Jesus, you'll open your mouth, you'll tell others to come. He'll be so good to you, you will have to tell others to come to Jesus too. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in light of this most extraordinary calling to be made clean by Christ, I ask that you would, through your Spirit, cause every single one of us to forsake every foolish idol that we still bow down to. 
every unclean thing, every unclean thought, every unclean relationship. Lord, I pray that you would strike them from our lives, that you would make us fit for the tree of life and the city to come. Forgive us for our sorcery and our sexual morality, for our murderous thoughts, for idolatrous worship, for our lying tongues. Forgive us through and through. Make us clean. Make us whole. And as you do, Lord, as you draw us to Jesus to cleanse us of every sin, I pray that in our thanksgiving and in our joy, we would tell others to come to. Father, make us a vocal church. In our great love for you and the love that you have for us in Christ, cause us to love the lost, to look upon the crowds just as Jesus did, and to tell them to come. I ask, Lord, that in that proclamation you would be pleased to redeem many in our mission field. Save many through us. And do it for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.